All right, well, turn with me over there to Hebrews chapter 6. We're going to be looking at verses 13 through 20, and there are no notes for you up on the screen today. Because, does anybody want to know why? Nobody does? I'll tell you why. Because when you're saving your file, you've got to make sure you save it rec- correctly. And, um, and so I saved, so each, I, I get my notes together each week. And then um, I'll go through and I'll create some slides out of it. I did that. But when I hit save, I actually overwrote my preaching notes before I printed them. So that was fun. That was fun. Um, so you don't get any of those. And, um, I, you know, we'll see what happens here. I believe it's um, the Lord has got something special he wants to say. So that's the first time I've done that in uh, 30 years of preaching. But that's why you don't get notes. So don't get upset at me. You can feel bad for me. But um, let's go ahead and dig into the word. And I just want to read this section of scripture to you. Uh, We begin at verse 13. It says, for when God made a promise to Abraham because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself saying, surely blessing I will bless you and multiplying I will multiply you. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. Thus God determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. As we open chapter six, we were hit with one of the most... um, Severe warnings in all of scripture. And it was a warning to uh, not return to what we've interpreted as the old Jewish law. It had a time and a place where it functioned and you could not come to the Lord apart from that. And so that was a revelation. But when Jesus came, he died, he rose again from the dead, ascended to the right hand of the Father. That became the old system, it was abolished. It was um, set aside because it was fulfilled. Jesus said, I did not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill. Once he fulfilled it, then that is no longer the way in which we come. And so this group of people was thinking about going back, or at least they were associated with the group of people. They were thinking about going back to that. And of course, if you go back to that, which has become obsolete, it can no longer provide any Renewal or repentance or refreshing for you. And so he gives them this, this strong warning. But then in the next section, uh, verses 9 through 12, he comes and he says, but, but I have a better hope for you. I don't think that you actually are that group that's going to go back and is no longer going to have a chance to, to be, find forgiveness of sins. I think you're going to keep your eyes on Jesus. And that's what we talked about last week. And he encouraged them to continue and to press on and not to become sluggish in their faith, verse 12. Now, in verses 13 through 20, he is going to encourage them about the character of God. 
So he says, what, there's a group that is thinking about going back and there's no hope for them. There's no hope in the law. Um, then for you, I believe that you're, you're of a, a different faith. I believe that you are going to continue to press on. Just don't become sluggish. And now in the closing, he's going to talk about the one who's going to make certain that they're the, the promises that they're holding on to and clinging to, going all the way back to the promises of Abraham, were actually going to be fulfilled. In other words, your faith in Jesus is not going to be put to shame. Your friends and your neighbors, you know, the leaders of the, the, the country of Israel, they may be looking at you and scorning you and wanting nothing to do with you, but I'm telling you, that it is a certain promise that God has given. And that is the title of this, uh, the study this morning, the certainty of the promises. And really the promise, the promise of Jesus. So in verses 13 and 14, we have this statement of a promise of blessing. This is for when God made a promise to Abraham. And then, so let's ask a little bit, what is that promise that he made to him? And, and it's going to come up again in verse 15. In, in short order, it's a promise that through him, the seed would come that would be um, the Savior, the Messiah of the people of Israel, but not just the people of Israel, the entire world. That God, through Israel and through this seed of Abraham, whom we know is Jesus, that he would bring blessing to them and he would bring um, a fulfillment that goes all the way back, um, even before Genesis, where uh, Abraham is introduced to us, all the way back to the garden where he promised that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent and that that curse that came upon mankind in the garden for his sin and rebellion against God would be reversed. Well, that eventually comes in Jesus. But it's appropriate for him to take us back to the promise given to Abraham because he's writing to Jewish people. He's writing to the father of their faith. And so he, he speaks of this. He says, God's made a promise to Abraham. It's a promise of blessing. He promised that he would give them a land. He promised that they would have many descendants. He promised that they would have salvation. But it isn't just Israel that God wants to bless. Of course, as you read, we read that he will become a, a blessing to many nations. God's desire is to bless you as he has blessed Israel. And the answer is the same. The answer is Jesus. God is wanting to bless this world that we live in. And the answer is the same. The answer is Jesus. He wants to give us eternal life. This is a promise that he says, or this is a blessing. He says, I'm sure you are connected in this. I've got a hope of better things, verse 9. Things that accompany salvation. I believe that you have this eternal life. And this eternal life goes back to the promise that was given to Abraham. And of course, this would have spoke um, loudly to them. Because this is what they're clinging to is, is Abraham. Nobody... Nobody was going to dispute that a promise was given to Abraham. The question is, where is the fulfillment? The author is obviously writing and arguing, and these group that's hearing him are hearing, and they've already made that confession that Jesus is the answer. And so he's wanting to settle this in their heart and mind. But um, ponder this. 
You have been given salvation. You have been given a promise. And it is God's desire to bring blessing upon you. That, that's the purpose of, of Jesus. That's the purpose of our faith, is that we might walk in blessing. And I want to ask you, are you confident that you have a part in God's eternal blessing? Do you, have you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ? Because if you haven't come to Jesus, then you are outside of that place where God wants to bring fulfillment and promise. But it is the heart of God to bless. I think some people, and Satan, I mean, he's, a, I mean, he's, he's marketing, and, he's, and he is a, a marketer of a false Jesus. And, and what he has convinced this world is that God wants to ruin your life. God wants to destroy. Religion is an oppressive thing. It's an unloving thing. It's an, it's an unkind thing. We need to be protected from faith in Jesus Christ. Now listen, religion in the sense of uh, organized religion that has not, does not have their faith and trust in Jesus. I believe there's a, a true religion, right? When we have our faith and trust in Jesus. But we use this word in a very broad sense. In that sense, religion has done harm to people. But listen to the heart of God. Psalm 34, verses nine and 10. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. There is no want to those who fear him. The young lions lack and suffer hunger, but those who seek the Lord, Yahweh, shall, now, shall not lack any good thing. That doesn't sound like a bad God. That sounds like a God that is wanting to pour out his richest and deepest blessings upon us, and that has been realized in Jesus. Or Psalm 84, verses 11 and 12, for the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord will give grace and glory no good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the man who trusts in you. There's blessing for having faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And this is what he's writing to these believers. The promises that are found in Abraham, they're certain, they are true. You can count on them. So he says, he could swear by no greater, so he swore by, by himself. So was it necessary for God to take an oath? No, it is absolutely not. If God says something, that is sufficient enough. Because of who he is, we're going to read it in just a moment, he is unchanging. So when he sets a course, we don't have to worry about him changing that. But he does come down to our level, if you will. He does uh, he is aware of our weaknesses, and so he speaks in terms that help us. And in this case, he, he made an, an oath. He gave a promise, but then he made an oath so that we could have this, this awareness, this certainty that God is going to fulfill what he said. And what is this oath that he has made? It's a, it's a promise that I'm gonna bless you, I, and surely in blessing, I will bless you. And in multiplying, I will multiply. So I'm gonna bless you, but then he made the oath. And so you maybe have had this thought, well, how do I know? How do I know that Jesus is the one? How do I know that when I die and, and pass from this life, that I'm actually going to end up in heaven, I'm gonna be in the right place? Well, because God has given you his word. God is is promised, and then he is giving you an oath 
that you can count on. Now, verse 15, um, moving on into verse 15, we, the place of patience in obtaining God's promises, which is something that he began to talk about uh, in, the, in our study last week. In verse 12, he says, do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And then he talks about Abraham, who inherits uh, the promises through faith and patience. And so he says, he patiently ob- endured and he obtained the promises. For some 25 years, he waited for that promise of a child. He says, I'm gonna make you a great nation. Your descendants are gonna be more than the sand of the seas, more than the stars in the heaven. In blessing, I'm gonna bless you. In multiplying, I'm gonna multiply you. And for 25 years, he did not see that come to pass. And so we see there his faith, that he continued to wait, he continued to believe. He did not give up on the word of the Lord. He had moments where he lapsed in his faith. We see that, the Bible's real. But overall, he was a man who trusted and he had faith in the Lord that he was going to accomplish this. He had patience. That's a lot of patience for 25 years. And then, when it finally came that he had a son and he had, he had grown, we read in chapter 22, and this is where we, that, that quote comes from you saying, surely I will bless you, uh, surely blessing I will bless you, multiplying I will multiply. It comes from chapter 22 when he, when he asks him and to, to go and sacrifice his son. Now, we read of that, and when God calls Abraham to go sacrifice his son, which he would have never had him do. And that's, he doesn't, he stops him from sacrificing his son. So what's happening? Why would he do that? Well, I think there's a few things that are at work, but let me just zero in on this one thing. I think he wanted to shock our senses. I think he wanted us to read that and be like, what? You have this promise of blessing. The man's waited all these years. He finally has his son. And now you're asking him to sacrifice. And Abraham is about to carry that out. He has brought his son. He's put him on the altar. He has the knife. And the Lord stops him at that moment. It is to disturb us. It is to shock our senses. Why? Because there is one that's going to come to that same spot. But it's not going to be the promised son of Abraham, Isaac. It's going to be the promised son of God, Jesus. But this time, when the son, the descendant, goes up to that Mount Moriah where Abraham had taken Isaac and where Golgotha is, this time when that descendant walks up that mountain with wood on his back, he is actually, as the only son of God, he is going to be sacrificed there. And the father is going to offer him up. Say, so, no, 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 it was, the, it was the Jews. It was Rome that did it. Read Isaiah 53. And you'll see that it pleased the Lord to bruise him. How can you make sense of that? How could he have any pleasure? Because he realized that sin must be punished. And in his plan to redeem and bless mankind, somebody had to pay for the penalty of sin. And so his son went to that place. And the father poured out his wrath on him so he wouldn't have to pour it out on us, me, you, your children, this world. And so I think, among other things, one of the things that is there in, uh, in 
him offering his son is to shock us, say, that's not right, that's not appropriate. And then as we think of the fulfillment of what that was prefiguring, what that was foreshadowing, that is actually the son of God, it's, to be, it's almost to be like a doubling down on our shocked sense of what is right. Because it would have been wrong for Isaac, it would have been wrong for Abraham to have offered up Isaac, that's not what God was doing. He was, ta- he was making a point there. But if it would have been wrong for him to do that, then how do we understand that Jesus is that substitute for my sin? I remember when I was, and I've shared this many times, but when I was in Australia and I was, they have these things that are called, uh, uh, what are they called? Like a mission week, beach week in Australia. And, and so the churches in Australia um, they will go out and they'll do uh, like outreach and evangelism on all the beaches and all the churches along the coast get involved in it. And it's, it's a big deal. And so I was asked to speak at one of these and they're very evangelistic. They're out there inviting everybody to come to the local churches and I, got, and I shared. And as I shared that, you know, a handful of people gave their, um, their life to the Lord, but there was this one boy who was probably, I don't know, I'm gonna say he's around 10 to 12 years old. And... Um, so he had given his life to the Lord and they had met with the counselors and afterwards I, I was going there and I, I, I said, what? I go, hey, you gave your life to the Lord. It's so awesome. This is great. The best decision ever. I go, what was it that, that brought you to the conclusion that you needed to put your faith and trust in Jesus? And he says, well, it's, he goes, it's not fair. And I said, well, what, what do you mean it's not fair? He goes, well, it's not fair that Jesus would have to die on the cross for the things that, this is a kid that wasn't grown up in church either. It isn't fair that Jesus would die on the cross for my sins, and if he loves me that much, I've got to follow him. There's some wisdom right there from a little 10-year-old. He got it. And, and that's the idea is that we would be so touched that this injustice, if you will, would, would, be, would happen to the Lord, that the innocent would die as the guilty. So he, he says to him, I'm going to... Do this. No, of course, Abraham does not offer up his son and is able to actually um, receive that promise. And he understands that God is going to do something down the road. 2 Corinthians 1, 20 through 22 says, For all the promises of God in him, that is in Jesus, are yes and in him, amen, to the glory of God through us. Now he who establishes us with you and Christ has anointed us is God who also has sealed us and given us the spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. So, I mean, we can begin to talk about some other ways that we can know for certain that we're not gonna be put to shame. And and Paul, uh, in writing the Corinthians, says here's one way you can know. Everything hinges on Jesus. All the promises are in him. And how can you know this is true? Because the spirit of God dwells in you. He dwells within you. He's given the spirit to you as a guarantee, just like the son promised, that it was good that he would go away, that the spirit might come. And so all of the promises are yes and amen in Jesus. So Abraham waits patiently, verse 15, um, and he obtains the promise, he receives the son. Why is it that God wants patience to be part of his plan to receive the promises. Through faith and patience, we inherit the promises of God. Well, faith, because apart from faith, it's impossible to please him. 
And if you think about this, if you have any meaningful relationship, at the center of that relationship, you have this thing called trust. We call it belief. We call it faith. You know, it's what brings people together in marriage, isn't it? Is that they have enough trust and confidence, faith in that other person, that they're the right person and they want to spend the rest of their life. If you don't have trust, it's very hard to have a meaningful relationship. This is why when people rail against the idea that um, I, I can never have faith, I could never be a part of something where you got to just believe in something. You know, I can't do that. Well, first of all, they're only applying that to their walk with the Lord, their belief in Jesus, because you cannot live this life in any kind of meaningful way apart from trust. Could you imagine living this life not believing in anybody or anything? For, I mean, set your faith in Christ aside. Could you, and there are people that walk around in, in utter fear their entire life thinking everybody is out to get them. There's paranoia. We don't think of this as a good thing to be apart from faith and belief. You have to have faith and belief. And I mean, I could give you a thousand examples. You drove here, your light turned green, you had faith that it was engineered and that theirs was gonna turn red, coming on, you know, across the traffic, and that the person who's driving that vehicle was actually gonna do it. I mean, you, you, you put faith in things all the time. All the time we're putting faith. You go and you buy stuff at the grocery store. How do you know it's not poison? Now, some of you are gonna go into phobias here over all this, but, <laughs> but I mean, you know, you have, what is there in this life where you, you do you really wanna live without a, a, a faith and trust? We can't function. You can't have meaningful relationships. So why did God make faith a part of a relationship with him because every meaningful relationship has faith. And the more faith you have, the more trust you have, the deeper that relationship is. So he wants to have a relationship with you and he wants it to be meaningful. So he didn't rip, he didn't neuter it of that element that binds people's hearts to, together, faith and, and trust. So. He wants us to do that because it speaks of, of the meaningful relationship. But it is, isn't it through patience that our faith grows too? We go through trials and then we come to the end of that trial and we see the Lord being faithful to it. So we've endured through it. Now we come to the end of it. It's like, wow, God's been faithful. Now my faith increases. I think one thing that happens as we certainly become more appreciative of the answer when we've endured a while. When you've endured, when you've had to kind of wait for the Lord to, to bring it to pass and you've prayed and you sought the Lord and you said, boy, it, it's easy to begin to give thanks to the Lord. Why is it so hard for us to be patient? Why is it so difficult? Well, because the need is right now. What I feel and what I see is it's happening in my life at this very second. And maybe there's a, um, an unpleasant element to it, or, or maybe the, the, uh, the desire for it is so great, the, the thought of not having it right now is just not bearable. And so it, it's because it, the need is right now, I want it now. But the Lord is trying to teach us 
that we got to trust in him. You know, we, we, we trust in the Lord. And so we, we day by day, we get up and we go and we get the manna that he's provided for us, right? We trust in him. And, and this is what the Lord is wanting you to do. But you know, Satan is also hard at work, always trying to work the angle to get us to stop having patience and stop enduring. He's trying to crush our faith. He's telling us to give up, that if God really saw, if God really cared, that he would have, he would have come through by now. But understand what God has said. He says, through faith and patience, inherit the promises. Now listen, ultimately, we're going to receive the promise in one of two ways. Either when we pass from this life and we go into the next one as a follower and believer of Jesus Christ, or it's gonna happen at the rapture of the church. When Jesus comes back and there'll be a generation that's alive within the church and they're gonna be instantly caught up into the presence of the Lord, the rapture of the church. Maybe we're that generation, we don't know. I think we're supposed to live like it though. It says, look up for our redemption draws near that we should be, you know, uh, even hastening the coming of the Lord, right? So we are, I believe every generation of the church should live with the anticipation that it might be today. It might be today. So one way or the other, we will receive the end of our faith, but the Lord calls us to have patience and he tells us to wait. In the meantime, Satan is working saying, God doesn't care, God doesn't love you. Give up. But wait a minute. God does love you. And the cross, the promise, and how that promise has come to us should dispel any of those thoughts. He gave up his son for you, for me. But you know, it isn't just the promises that pertain to our eternal life and our salvation, which is in view. But as a point of application, you know, the Lord comes and he speaks things into our own hearts and into our own lives. He gives us a promise. He tells us that he's going to do something. And these can become quite personal. And sometimes we don't always share these openly with people because we're contemplating these things in our heart. We're, we hear the promise. And, um, you know, there's one of those things, uh, promises in my life, more than one, but one that, you know, really stands out where, um, you know, I hesitate to share this because I don't want it to, because it was, well, I'll share it. So when I was real young, I was, I, um, I was told, I felt a call into ministry. I believed I was called. If you would have talked to me, I would have told you I'm called into ministry. But then there started to be all these people around me that were, were saying, you know, the, Troy, the Lord has many plans for your life. He has many plans. And he's going to bless, and he's going to bless. And, and there was, I mean, there, it was all around. And, um, and people began to talk about, you know, the ministry is going to grow. It's going to be large. But for the next 27 years of my life, it was not like that. It just was a good, faithful work that I was actually completely content with. And, and yet, even still, they would continue. I would continue to get people writing me letters and sending me notes and saying things to me. And I'm like, well, I, if, if it happens that the Lord really wants to, you know, grow Calvary Chapel Lynchburg, then that'll, that'll be fine with me. That's fine. But I, I'm, I've learned to be content with, you know, 
the small fellowship that we are. And um, so even my, the time on the mission field, even you know, so many years in ministering, serving at other churches, it was always um, fruitful, but not noticeable. Which, what matters is what? Being fruitful. But I was always hearing, and even in my own reading, I would hear these things from the Lord saying, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, if you, if you will. I, I say noticeable, not in necessarily a positive way, but just that's when people tend to take, pay attention to ministry, which is very, very sad. But um, the Lord would give that to me, and I just, I was like, okay, well, I mean, I don't know. This is, is this just wishful thinking? But in my heart, it was there. But it was, it was over more than a quarter of a century of waiting for that to happen. And he did, to his glory and to his honor. And he did it at the most unlikely time. I mean, in the most unlikely, if you were to pick one time in the last 25 years when you think the church would explode, you, most people would say probably during COVID, and that's when it happened. And, and this, is, this is to the glory of the Lord. So there are those promises that we have where God uh, of our eternal life and salvation, but then there are those quiet words that come to us of something he wants to do in your life and through your life. Gotta be careful with it because it's, it's not necessarily, it's, you can't put it on the same level as scripture, right? Somebody comes and makes us a prophecy, we're told test all things, right? Hold fast to what is true. So in my mind, there was always this testing that was going on. Well, I haven't seen it, I don't know. I mean, I'd love for that to be true. When I read these things, it seems like it's true. And so, uh, you know, it's faith and patience. So maybe there's a word that's come to you in your heart and your life. You know, you can't say definitively as you can, you know, about Jesus and salvation, but it's a, it's a promise that you ponder. And, and I, that's what, exactly what I encourage you to do, is to ponder it. And as you wait for it, don't allow it, just, just don't allow it to over, overtake the scene. Don't allow it to become the thing that you begin to seek after because you inherit the promises through faith and patience. It's, it's God who's going to do it. So I imagine that ministers to somebody in here. And um, so ponder these things in your heart. And, and if the Lord wants to, to fulfill that, if it's a word from the Lord that he's spoken through somebody else, then it'll come to pass and you will see it. Well, in verses 16 through 18, we see the trustworthiness of God's promise. That is, our God cannot lie. So he gave this promise. He swore an oath. And, and so the writer here begins to kind of explain this. He says, for men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. So if you say you're going to do something or you're making a statement that is an amazing statement, people say, oh, come on. You're like, no, really, I promise. And, and you know, you begin, you know what, and then you, you'll make an oath. And, you know, we are not so much an oath society as much as they were back in this day, you know, but they would, they would make an oath and they would, they say, you can know this is going to be certain and they would appeal to something great that you can know that they really mean it. Like, if I was to say to you, I swear by my old, my old smelly shoes that I'm gonna come and help you, you're like, yeah, he's not coming. He's not coming. He appealed to his old smelly shoes. There's nothing invested there. 
But if I said, I, I will be there and I swear to you in the lives of my children, you're like, yeah, that's kind of over the top. You don't need to do that. But I guess he really means he's coming. And so when, when a person makes an oath, it's, it's to, you appeal to something great, right? And in doing that, then a person knows, oh, what you're saying is really true. At least you would hope that it is. Well, when you are at the top of the universe and you are the creator of all things and there is no one greater than you, who do you appeal to? <laughs> Yourself. And that's what the Lord has done here. So God determined to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutable, immutability. In other words, it can't change. What I've promised is gonna happen. He confirmed it by an oath. That by two immutable things, which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation. You should have strong encouragement that you are gonna be in the presence of Jesus because you've put your faith and trust in him. You can, you can have a strong confidence. What are the two immutable things? Well, it's the promise that he's going to do that, and then it's the oath that he's going to do it. So you, the, God is, it cannot change. And so when God says he's gonna do something, it is certain he's not going to back out on that. In verse, uh, into verse 18, he says um, that we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. So we're gonna close here. He's gonna give us four metaphors in the closing a couple of verses. First one comes in verse 18. He's our refuge. In verse 19, he's gonna say that he is um, the anchor of our soul. Um, in verse 20, he's gonna tell us that he's the forerunner and kind of, and then at the end of verse 20, he's going to say that he is the high priest. He's a refuge. This would have been familiar language to them because throughout the land of Israel, there were these things called cities of refuge. Cities of refuge were a place where um, uh, you, know, you could run to. If you're out doing work and the axe had, flew off your axe uh, handle and it struck somebody and it killed them, and the family decided they wanted to kill you in retaliation, you could get there if you could run fast enough. You could get to the city of refuge, and that city was required to protect you. Now, if you ever left, the protection was lifted, and retribution could come. City of refuge. That becomes a picture for us. Do you, do you understand that all of us were in, on the run? All of us were fugitives, and we had this enemy that was after us, the enemy of our souls, Satan, seeking to drag us to hell with his lies and his deception. And we have a refuge that we can run into. We come broken, desperate, and in need, calling out to the Lord, our Savior, who is a refuge. But sadly, I think the way we think of Jesus sometimes is like, well, I'll check you out. I'll give you a shot. I'll see, what do you got to offer me, Jesus? No, that's not the way it is. It's not you're like you're shopping for the best offer. You're a fugitive on the run. And, and Satan wants to take you and he wants to drag you to hell where you'll be destroyed forever. And there's a refuge out there for you. And his name is Jesus. And we come running in desperation to him and saying, save me. And really, until we come to that place where we know we're on the run and we need saving, we're never going to come to Jesus as that city of, of refuge for us. But he also goes on to say that he is the anchor of our soul. 
Uh, Chrysostom said there's three symbols that it is appropriate. This is, you know, uh, no, Chrysostom? Maybe, maybe that or Clement. This was in my other notes. I could tell you, if I had them, I could tell you. I'm going from memory here. Um, I think it was Clement, actually. And he says there's three appropriate symbols that Christians could make, uh, you know, uh, into a ring. One of them was the fish. So the sign. One of them is the dove. Maybe you've seen that around here. Another one was, guess what? An anchor. And he's like, these are, these are worthy symbols. That's not scripture. It's just, it was his take on it. But I found that kind of an interesting piece. Because the idea of an anchor is you're not going to be moved. It's secure. The waves of the earth, of, of, this, of this world can beat up on you. But Jesus is the anchor of your soul. He's going to keep you. He's going to hold you. In verse 20, he says that he's a forerunner. Prodromus is the Greek word here, and it's the, this is the only time in the Bible that it's used. And it's, it speaks of, one of the ways in which this word was used, there are a few applications of, of how this word was used, but one of the ways was a small unit of soldiers that would go ahead of the main body, and they would walk the exact path that that body of uh, uh, soldiers are going to come so that they could have a clear understanding that the path is safe and they could traverse that way. Well, Jesus is that. He has gone. He has come he's, he, as a man. He died, but he rose from the dead and now he's behind the veil and has made a way for us to come. So Jesus is a forerunner. You're going to experience what Jesus experienced. Jesus died. When you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you died to the old man. You're going to get a new body. You're going to be in the presence of the Lord as well. And then this last metaphor that he gives, this picture, which is one that he's going to talk a lot about moving into chapter 7, is he's going to talk about how he is a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, remember back in chapter 5, um, verse 10, he says... He says, called by God as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek, of whom we have much to say and hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. And then he goes on a little exhortation to not be dull of hearing. Now, after kind of going down that road and exhorting them, he comes back to this subject here in verse 20. And if you look into chapter 7, there's going to be a whole lot of conversation about this. But here's the wonderful thing. Jesus has entered the holy place. He has gone behind the veil. And, um, and of course, we're going to read here in Hebrews that his veil is the f his flesh that's been ripped in two. His body was torn apart as he died on the cross. But something happened in, you know, in the physical world when Jesus' body was being ripped apart and dying on the cross. Does anybody know what it is? The veil in the temple, the physical temple there in Jerusalem that separated the holy place from the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant was, that veil, not like, don't think of like wedding veil, think of like, you know, a large curtain. It was ripped from top to bottom when Jesus hung and died on the cross, indicating that we now have way into the holy place. Why? Because our forerunner went there. He presented himself. You see, the high priest once a year, would go into 
the holy place, and he would sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice. Jesus went into that temple, if you will, in, in heaven, not made with hands, and his blood was sprinkled on there. But as he went in, he ripped that veil, indicating this is never going to be closed off again. And so we have access into that fellowship with the Lord. You have a strong faith. You can have a certain hope that what Jesus has done for you is going to be realized by you. You're going to be in heaven one day. You are going to sit in the presence of God. You're going to receive reward. You're going to, we, this is all ours. And he has come for us. He has come for you. And you can have strong confidence. Don't allow Satan, your questioning mind, or this culture take you away from the hope that you have in Christ Jesus. It is real, and it's going to come. Yeah, but it's been such a long wait. He told us it was going to be like that. He told us it was going to be like that. Don't be surprised by it. Be comforted. Be comforted that as you wait patiently and as you endure, that's exactly how the Lord said it should be. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and your truth. And that you've gone out of your way to confirm, Lord, your word in in our hearts and our lives. And Lord, as we referenced in Corinthians, you've given us your spirit as a guarantee. Not only do we have your word, which is sufficient, Lord, because you are immutable. You don't change. You don't lie. You don't, you don't come up with a new plan. And then you, you gave an oath with that promise. Lord, we know that it is true. But you've gone even beyond that. And you've placed your Holy Spirit within us by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Lord. We worship you and we give you glory.